Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 43 to 54. This is the word of God. After two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he, now going, as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives and he himself believed and his whole household this again is a second sign that jesus performed when he had come out of judea into galilee it was the summer of 2013 i won't forget this summer we had just gotten back from family vacation in hilton head and we went to a pool party and Emily had a great time, but at the end of it, she felt sick to her stomach, and I thought, well, she probably swallowed too much water. So then the next week, we went to a wedding, and I think it was the Settles wedding. And in the middle of the wedding, Emily felt sick, and we had to leave in the middle of the wedding. And we noticed also, she said, there's bruise, bruises all over her body. And so... Monday morning, we went to the doctor, and they took a blood sample, and right after the blood sample, the doctor said, you need to take her to the hospital immediately. So when we got there, everybody's thinking leukemia, but nobody's saying the word leukemia. That's what the symptoms were all pointing to, and when we finally brought up the word leukemia to a nurse, the nurse looked at us and said, you don't have to worry about leukemia. What you have to worry about is aplastic anemia. And, and you know, the reason why she said that is 95% of children that have leukemia, it's curable, but that, that's not the case with aplastic anemia. Well, three days after that, the nurse's statement would be prophetic because the doctor told us that Emily had aplastic anemia. 
What do you do when you're told that your child might die? And, and that's why I bring it up, because this man in this passage was going through the same emotions, the same thing. What do you do when you're told that your child might die? I know in my case, um, Denise and I pleaded with God. I bargained with God. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I did. You know, I bargained with God. And, and I remember God putting it in my heart that, Mark, you don't have to do that. I've, I've already taken care of all that, you know, through my son. Man, that was overwhelming sense of peace at that. But I finally had to realize, I had to come to the realization that I needed to rest in God's will no matter what. I needed to be able to pray a prayer, heal her according to your perfect will, even if that perfect will meant heaven. And I had to rest in that plan. Well, you all know the rest of the story. God graciously healed Emily. But in this story, this man was struggling. And so he comes to Christ and he pleads with him. And Christ takes this, this trial in this man's life and he grows his faith tremendously. And not only does he grow his faith, we'll see, but he also grows his family's faith and so the first thing that we're going to look at is trials for all. Look, look back at verses 43 and 44. It says, After the two days he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So he's going from, remember we're, we're talking about the Samaritan woman, and now he's going into Galilee. In fact, he left Judea, and the ministry was going wonderful run wonderfully well in Judea. So the question is, why did he leave Judea? Well, look back at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Keep your finger in this passage. It said, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more than John, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So he leaves Judea. Um, the Pharisees hear about his ministry, how it's blowing up, how it's growing, and they're jealous, you know. And in order to avoid arrest and being crucified at the wrong time, it's not my time yet, he said that many times, he goes to a place where he would cause less of a commotion. You know, a place where a prophet has no honor in his own country. But we see in verse 45 that the Galileans still received him. They received him not as the Messiah, but as a miracle worker. One that they had already seen do miracles in Jerusalem during the feast. So they were ready for more. Hey, let's see more. Let's see more. In fact, that kind of reminds me of Acts chapter 8 uh, and Simon the sorcerer. Listen, listen to this. Simon the sorcerer, in Acts chapter 8, verse 10, it says this. Now there was a, a dis, uh, disciple, sorry, long page. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. 
And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had long time astonished them with his magic arts, with sorcery, with all kinds of magic that he was performing before these people. And they were drawn to him. And I believe that's the same thing that was going on in Galilee. They were drawn to Christ. Not because he was the Messiah, but because he was doing miracles before them. Um, they were looking at him still as Mary's son. And as long as the miracles kept coming, they would keep coming to him. But once they stopped, the crowds would move on. You know, and that kind of reminds me of our culture. You know, we are constantly looking for something to amaze us, to entertain us. But after being amazed, we quickly move on, missing the one who can satisfy our souls. So Jesus comes to Cana, and the town in which he made water into wine, and this royal official from King Herod's staff comes to meet him. Now, Herod Antipas was the ruler over Galilee and Perea during the life of Christ. And this royal official was possibly a tax collector under King Herod. And tax collectors made a lot of money. Uh, and as you can see from this passage, this man was wealthy. He had servants. You know, he, he had a lot of money. Um, and this should be a message to all of us. Not only was he wealthy... Not only did he have a lot of servants, but he was also Jewish. Now, and this should be a message to us. Even though this man was rich, even though he was part of the majority population, he was Jewish, this did not exempt him from the trials of life. We need to constantly remind ourselves that nothing exempts us from trials. Not income, not our race, not our gender, not even whether we're a Christian or not. Now that might be a shock for some of you, but none of that exempts us from tough situations. Listen to what Job uh, chapter 5 says in verse 6 and 7. It says this, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. One author says this about this passage in Job. He says, the Hebrew of this saying is beautiful. For the two Hebrew words translated by the one word sparks are literally the sons of flame. And the thought is that men are born to endure the fires of life and eventually perish in the burning. Now, you know, that's not too encouraging, is it? But that's a promise in a sense that we all will face trials. Don't be surprised. Even Jesus promises that in John 16, He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But then he gives us the good part. But take courage. Do not fear. For I have overcome the world. You know, it kind of reminds me of Joshua 1.9. When Joshua is taking over 
for Moses, you know, to lead millions of people. Can you imagine this young guy saying, okay, okay, take over, right? And you're going to lead millions of people who are stiff-necked and rebellious. And what does God say to him? Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So what can we learn from this passage? How should we respond to the inevitable trials of life? Well, this royal official shows a growing faith in facing the possible death of his son. So let's look at a growing faith. This rich man travels 16 miles to Canaan from Capernaum to plead for his son's life. And and this kind of reminds me, if you've been watching the news lately, there's a child in England right now, who's suffering in a hospital. Has anybody heard about this? Um, Suffering in the hospital. Uh, The hospital will not release the child. The child is dying, and the only hope for the parents is to get this child from England to New York, where a doctor says, I can help this child. Okay? And the parents are fighting through the court system. Can you believe this? To get their child released from the hospital. Uh, that's, that's unbelievable, right? But it's the same situation. These parents are pleading for their kid's life. And if there's even a only 10% chance of, of helping him, they're going to do it. And that's what this man was doing. If he had to walk a thousand miles to find a cure for his son, he was going to do it. And if he had to go to some guy that's a miracle worker, miracle worker, he was going to do it. So he begins this eight-hour trip climbing 700 feet into the hill country of Canaan. And notice how desperate this man is because he pleads with Jesus. He begs Jesus. And it kind of makes me think, here's this guy that's a rich guy, okay? He's not used to having to plead for anything. He's used to getting whatever he wants. He rings a bell, his servants come. He shouts an order, he's quickly obeyed. He pays some money, and things get done. But now, now he's not in control. He is totally dependent upon Christ. And guess what? That's a good place to be. That's where God wants every one of us to be. He wants us to have a childlike faith, always trusting in Christ. Lately, that's where uh, my family's been. There, none of them are here this morning except for Jill over here. Um, we've been... Um, Lately, we've been having to trust in Christ with everything when dealing with my mom's illness. And as most of you know, she has Alzheimer's, and, and at this point it's progressed so much that she's in bed constantly, and she doesn't recognize anyone, and she's in constant pain lately. And, and just like this man... It's very hard 
to watch somebody you love suffer. Um, because you feel like you're powerless. There's nothing that you can do. And along with that comes the temptations that the enemy comes in and he sees you at your weakest point, you know, when you're struggling, when you're, when you're watching somebody else that you love struggle, the enemy comes and fires his darts at you. He wants you to think, how can God love you? How can, this is his greatest assault on us. How can God love you? Or how can God love your mom? Or how can God love your daughter and allow them to go through this? How many of you have ever had that fiery dart put at you? Every one of you, probably. He either does that or he says, how can God be all-powerful and allow this trial in your life? Or how can God allow your loved one to continue to suffer and not intervene. How can God do that? He keeps shooting the darts at you, getting you to try to question the love of your father. One writer says this, John Owens, John Owen was considered the prince of Puritan theologians. He, throw, he wrote three um, wonderful books all on sin. One was of the mortification of sin in believers, of temptation and the nature and power of sin, and the prevalency of indwelling sin. He also wrote a book entitled Communion with God, in which he made this statement, and this is what I want you to hear. Listen to this statement. This is from John Owen. He says this, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, your heavenly Father, the greatest unkindness that you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. Did you hear that? Does that surprise you? Would you have expected John Owen to say that the greatest sorrow and burden we can lay on the Father is to commit some scandalous sin, especially since I just quoted three books that he wrote on sin. Isn't that the way we tend to think of God more as a judge than as our Father? That is because we don't keep the gospel constantly before us. You can easily gather by the nature of these three books that John Owen was not soft on sin. In fact, his, his work on indwelling sin is, listen to this, is very sobering and almost scary as he exposes the nature, power, and deceitfulness of sin that resides in us. But Owen was more concerned that we keep before us the gospel, the love of God revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. So what should we learn when we face these trials of life? What should we learn from this passage? That the, the, one of the main things is never judge the love of God for you or your loved one 
by the circumstances that you face. Jesus loves me, this I know, not because my circumstances tell me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the what? Bible tells me so. And that is his final word to us. Nothing changes that. Not our circumstances. Not the trials that we face. We walk by faith, not by sight. Romans 5 says, we stand in grace and we stand immovable. What does that say? Immovable. We don't let the fiery darts of Satan get us to move away from grace even for a moment. Even if we want to bargain with God. And listen to this. Even if the suffering is a result of your sin, it is never punitive from God. His discipline is never a punishment for us. Do you hear me? It's discipline to get us to repent so that we will continue on in our sanctification with joy and thankfulness. Well, the royal official was in this process of pleading for his son. Look at verse 47. It says this, When he heard that Jesus came, or had come, out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. The royal official is in this process of pleading for his son's life. And what is Jesus' response? <laughs> it's unbelievable. He's, he, he, notice in verse 48, he says, So Jesus said to him, this is pointed to the royal official. He says this to him, unless you people, and then he includes everybody around him, all the Galileans, he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. So he includes all of them in this. And he's saying your faith is puny. You know, we, we always read stories like this and we think, oh, this guy must have had great faith. You know, because Jesus responds to him. But here in this passage, that's not the case. You know, the initial, the initial uh, word from Christ is a rebuke. But it doesn't detour this man from continuing to plead. And then he changes it and he says, he, he says um, after that, he says to him, Sir, come down before, instead of saying my son, he says my child. So this is a young child. And he says, before my child dies. And how does Jesus respond? You know, it reminds me of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee in the storm 
at sea when he said, hush, be still, and the storm went flat. Three words. Three words. And here, what does he say? Your son lives. And it's done. And I want you to think about this. While he was saying those three words, your son lives, not only was he healing the son, but he was healing the father's heart spiritually. Spiritually. The royal official, as I said before, had a limited faith at the beginning. And you might be thinking, well, how do you know that, Mark? How did he have a limited faith? Well, notice in the text, he says, come down with me. Where is he saying come down to? Capernaum, because it's downhill. That's why he's saying come down. It's 700 feet below, uh, 16 miles away. He says, come down with me. So what's he saying? He's saying, the only way my son will be healed is if you come with me and you either touch him or you're there with him, then he will be healed. Okay, so that's one limitation. You've got to be there for him to be healed. The second one is this. The second one is this. He says, come down here or my son, or before my son dies, right? So here's the other limitation. If you don't get there before he dies... It's over. It's over. So what's he saying to Jesus? What's he saying? He's saying, you have no power over death. You know, you've got to get there before he dies. Or, or it's done. You have no power over death. Um, but, but we all know we all know if you move a little bit further in the book of John, you have Jesus standing before a tomb in a John, John eleven forty three, and he stands there, and after Lazarus had been dead in the grave for four days, you know, Martha said, you don't want to open that tomb, right? It, you know, you don't want to do that. And after he had been in the grave for four days, Jesus says, another three words, I love that, another three words, Lazarus, come forth. And he walks out of the grave. That's the power of our God. You know, that's the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and, and, and I heard a sermon once preach where the man said, you know, if, if he wouldn't have been specific on that day, if he, would have, if he wouldn't have said, Lazarus, come forth, if he would have just said, come forth, every grave would have been emptied on that day. That's amazing to think about. The power of our God. So this royal official starts out with this limited faith, but it starts growing. And, and uh, the third point is believing is seeing. And, and he doesn't believe Jesus now, we start seeing him grow, his faith grow in a substantial way. And he doesn't believe Jesus because he sees what he's going to do, but he takes him at his word. Notice verse 50 through 54. It says this. Um, Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, and, saying, 
that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now there's a saying in this world that seeing is believing. And this is what it appeared that the Galileans believed. They, they wanted to see more and more and more and more miracles, you know. Hey, we'll believe you. Keep giving us miracles. We'll keep, yeah, keep giving us. We'll believe, we'll believe eventually. Seeing is believing. But in Jesus' economy, the opposite is true. Believing is seeing. You know, when we trust God, we see his glory. And this is what this royal official learned. He took Jesus at his word, though he didn't see his son healed yet, he trusted him by faith. And this is the Christian walk. This is what we do. We walk by faith, not by sight. We believe before we see. We plead with God, but trust him with the outcome. That reminds me of the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You all know the story. King Nebuchadnezzar sets up this huge idol, right? And he says, every time the music plays, every time the music plays, everybody's to bow down and worship this idol. Now, I don't know where Daniel was. He's probably on vacation, maybe in Aruba. But the only ones that are mentioned are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here's the sad thing. Here's the sad thing. Um, when the music played and everybody bowed down, somebody ratted on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and said this, said, out of all the Jews, there's only three that aren't bowing down. That's pretty sad, isn't it? That's kind of what Dale was talking about. You know, three out of the whole church, only three were standing firm. And so, Nebuchadnezzar gets ticked off, okay? And he says, all right, heat up the furnace. Heat it up ten times or whatever, he's, you know. Heat it up big time. And we're going to give you one more chance. When the music plays, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you better get on your knees. And I, I love their response. Listen to the courage of their response. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Can you believe that? We don't need to give you an answer. You know, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. Nah, we don't need to give you an answer. But then they say this, If it be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying, you know what? We know that God can you know, take us out of your hands. 
And we know that we don't have to go in the furnace if God doesn't want us to. But even if God allows it, we're going to continue to serve our God. What they're saying is, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, either one, I'm going to trust God. Either way. And you know what? That's what it means to walk by faith. And that is the way of peace in the Christian life. Anything else fills us with anxiety. Well, how are you doing in the trials of your life? Are you like Daniel's friends, believing without seeing? Or are you like doubting Thomas, who said, I've got to put my finger here and in the side. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, be believing, not unbelieving. It meant continue to live by faith every second of every day. Go back to the last part of this story. Now, at the last section between 49 and 54, I believe many theologians continue to build this guy's faith up to make him look like this guy is incredible, right? And one of the reasons why they do this is because they interpret the way they interpret the seventh hour. Um, and I've told you before in other sermons that there's two ways in, of interpreting hours in the book of John. You can either use the Jewish way of timekeeping or you can use the Roman way of timekeeping. If you use the Jewish way of timekeeping, the seventh hour in this story is 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Okay? So if you're using the Jewish way, this, this child was healed at, at 1 p.m. Now, why would 1 p.m. be a problem? Well, it's a problem with this. If this father left right after his son was healed, he would get back to Capernaum, especially downhill, 700 feet going downhill. You're a lot faster going downhill. He would have gotten there before midnight, easily. And in the passage it says, when he meets up with the servants, they say, when was he healed? Yesterday, at the seventh hour. So, 1 p.m. would be a problem. The other problem would be this. You know, many say, well, he had such great faith that he just sat there and talked with Jesus for the rest of the day and then went to bed and then got up the next morning to go, maybe early. Now, that for, for me is hard to believe because if, if I knew my child was healed, I'd want to be there like, right like that, right, to see how he's doing. So I believe the Roman way of timekeeping would be more uh, right with this story because that would be 7 p.m. So in the evening, if it was 7 p.m., the child was healed, he could say, ah, it's going to get dark. It's dangerous to travel, you know, 16 miles in the dark. I'll wait till morning and get up early. Or, or he could have taken off. And by the time he met up with his servants, it could have been 2 in the morning the next day. That would make more sense with the text. But here's the most important thing. He asked his, his servants, I love this, he asked his servants, when did he start getting better? And they say, the seventh hour. And he's like going, wow. Why does he go, wow? Because he knows, you know, he looked at his wristwatch, I don't know how he knew. Uh, he knew that Jesus said, 
your son lives at the seventh hour. And he was just astounded. Now think about this. Have you ever, you know, had, have you ever prayed for somebody, you know, at three in the afternoon um, and they, they asked you to pray for them or something like that and you prayed at 3 p.m. and then they come back to you and they say, when did you pray for me? And you say, about 3 o'clock. And they said, that's exactly when God answered my prayer. Hey, anybody had that happen to And you're like, wow! Only God can do that. And here with this text, think about this. Only God can heal somebody 16 miles away. And that's what's going through this man's mind. He's saying, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. I am now going to believe in Jesus Christ. I'm going to put my faith in him. And not only does he put his faith in him, but then he tells the story, I'm sure, to his family, and they all come to faith in Christ. Amazing. In closing... Don't need to turn the page yet. In closing, about 30 years ago, my mom had a heart attack. Kind of funny, all my illustrations are about my family and they're not there. <laughs> my mom had a heart attack. And she was, you know, feeling the pain of a heart attack and she was, she called my dad who worked at Pratt & Whitney 25 miles away and she said, call an ambulance. I don't know why she didn't call. Probably didn't have 911 back then. But she called my dad and, and she said, call an ambulance. And then she fell to the ground and she was filled with anxiety. Filled with fear. Because she kept thinking, you know, I'm dying and I'm not going to see my kids again. I'm, I'm not going to see my family. I'm not going to see my husband. I'm not, I'm not going to see anybody. So she was she was petrified. And then, in another second, and I believe God did this for her, she started thinking about the gospel. And she started thinking about Christ. And she started thinking about heaven. And she said within a second, she had an overwhelming sense of peace. You know, she had the peace which surpasses all understanding. And, 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 I, and I think about that. Why did she have that? Because she no longer was thinking, you know, I don't want to go. I want to stay with my family. And at that point, she finally said, you know, whatever your will is, God. Whatever you want to do with me. She trusted him no matter what. And that is the way of peace. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for your spirit which lives within us and and Father that empowers us to be able to trust you even in the severe trials of life. Father, we thank you also that you help us to stand by faith 
in the grace that you have given us and that you help us to stand in grace and to be immovable. Father, I pray for everyone here that is maybe struggling even now with the trials of life that you will help them to continually look to you like this nobleman did to you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust it, that we can trust your word with our very lives, with our very souls, that you can never um, go against your word. Father, we praise you for this time together. We praise you for this time in your word, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.